we're live from Midori House in London and you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up here today, Charles Hecker and Latika Burke will share their views on the week's biggest stories. Charles, what do you have for us? We're going to take a look at global reaction to Donald Trump's storming start in the Iowa caucuses. And Latika. Georgina, I've been taking a look at British Labour's progressive realism foreign policy and how that might wear against Donald Trump. We'll bring in one of our global correspondents. This is Monocle correspondent Mary Fitzgerald, and I'll be joining you this morning from Granada in Spain, where I'll be bringing news from around the Mediterranean, including news of a spike in olive oil prices worrying Spanish consumers, and also an ongoing touristification debate here in Granada and Andalusia more generally. Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, will also be joining us from Paris, ahead of the Paris Retail Summit. It's the 21st of January, 2024. Welcome to Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Georgina Godwin. Well, let's bring in today's panellists. I'm joined by senior partner at Control Risk, Charles Hecker, as well as journalist and geopolitics expert, Latika Burke. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Good morning, Georgina. Morning, Georgina. So the thing is, British people talk about the weather a lot, don't they? But nobody around this table or indeed on this programme today is British. Are well, we st- well, well, breaking news. <laughs> I've just become a citizen. Have you? I have. Congratulations. Which now qualifies me to talk about the weather endlessly. And I must say, Georgina, I strolled to Monocle this morning so delighted that the end of brain freeze weather has dawned upon us. We are surviving an absolute London heat wave. It was plus eight when I woke up this morning. And and I thought well about all of the things that I won't have to put on when I leave the house. Isn't that great? And also, it just stays light for longer. Oh, it is lovely not to have pitch black darkness at 3.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> the can small I, things in life, Georgina. Can I just make you all envious and say I'm going off to Cartagena in Colombia this week. So oh, wow. I think that's, uh, that's going to be pretty special weather. If you need someone to carry your bags, I am available. <laughs> that position already filled, I'm afraid. Now, let's go off to Paris because Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, is there. Good morning to you, Tyler. Or should I say bonjour? Bonjour. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, good morning, uh, everyone in Studio One. Um, a rather chilly day in Paris, but I think if we're going to sort of start the program by doing and, and talking about weather and changing days, um, it has been absolutely frigid, a little bit like it's been in London. Uh, but if I was looking at all of the, the news uh, shows this morning on French television, uh, and everyone's talking about sort of the dramatic turn that it's going to go from being sort of minus three uh, to plus 16 um, in the span of about 48 hours. It's extraordinary how much we talk about this, though, isn't it, Tyler? It's, it's not just British people then, is it? It's not. Definitely not. Uh, You have all of the uh, various uh, French uh, meteorologists bundled up all corners of the country, uh, waiting for high windstorms to blow in across off the Atlantic. uh, And and of course, uh, maybe surging temperatures down in Biarritz. Um, Now, you are actually in Paris for the uh, retail summit. Oh, well, I'm here uh, more broadly, Georgina, um, for, for a variety of things, but uh, principally uh, re- retail being one part of it. But also we're coming off the back of uh, Fashion Week uh, right now, at least Men's Fashion Week. Um, and then we go into uh, Couture right now. So that was a little bit of it joining uh, some of our colleagues who are very much part of the advanced team uh, who are out here. Also, you had Maison et Objet, which, of course, is the big decorative uh, fair. So, you know, if you're concerned about uh, what you want to put your drink in uh, come uh, springtime, uh, what type of throw cushions you might need, Georgina. Uh, this is also the big highlight uh, event that is on at the moment. So the city is absolutely 
packed at the moment. And uh, you know, on the topic of uh, of retail, you have buyers from all over the world. And when it comes to yeah, really everything around aesthetics and design, um, this is really the city which is at the forefront at the moment. Uh, and speaking of aesthetics, what do you think about France's proposed school uniforms? I understand it's going to be blue jumpers and grey trousers. Yeah, very, very exciting. Uh, there's uh, there's some sketches uh, that have appeared. Uh, the well, the, the, this is a project, of course, which got underway uh, when Gabriel Attal, uh, now the Prime Minister, formerly, of course, the, the Education Minister. This was a, a big project, you know, and a multi-pronged uh, attack. Uh, of course, this was very much uh, at the core of, of, of France's. Uh, La Cité, uh, not just movement, but ethos, uh, and, and how do you, uh, I guess, create a little bit of sense, or maybe a lot, a greater sense of social capital in schools? How do you, of course, yeah, help parents, uh, save money in the ever, uh, escalating, uh, war of having the right jacket, uh, the right trouser, et cetera. So this is a, a project which is getting underway. A hundred schools will sign up to it. Uh, and we're talking, of course, uh, this is, these are state schools. Um, and if this trial goes well, and this, uh, should get underway by springtime, then in 2025, uh, you will have the, uh, ent- entire country should sign up to the program. One thing I'm sort of keen to see though, it was just interesting watching television right now. It's amazing whether you're seeing an ad for a mouthwash or a car uh, or yeah, any household product, how often you see on television made in France uh, as, as part of you know, one of the last little bits of graphic that will come up on uh, a, a TV ad. So I'm curious to see, you're talking about serious volumes, a lot of money that will need, need to be deployed for these uniforms. Will they be made in France? And I mean, it's quite a controversial topic, isn't it? I mean, here in Britain and and, and I know in Japan and various other places of the world, uh, school uniforms are completely normal. That's just how it happens. But in France, it's caused quite an outrage. It has, of course, very much um, at the at the heart of of a cultural debate, uh, and and certainly because it has never been part uh, of, yeah, you could say the the national curriculum, uh, the, the national education set up in a broader sense. So that, that is one part of it. Um, and, and, of course, people see that this is it's an attack on religious freedom. But, of course, you're talking about France, as I say, and secularism. And, of course, this is why this is at the core of it. Uh, and, and many, of, of course, have seen this as, as, a, as a swipe uh, at uh, women wearing the abaya. So uh, we'll, we'll see how this unfolds. But at the same time, yes, I mean, how do we measure outrage? There's a lot of people you speak to in France who are very much behind this as well. Mm. Uh, Tyler, you mentioned Men's Fashion Week, and of course Couture is about to start. What, what is the feeling that you're getting for, from all of this? What is what is the story about fashion? Well, I, I think the story is one not so much about what we're going to see on clothing rails and in shop windows. I think the bigger story uh, is who's winning. Um, and, you know, you can probably rewind, what, 15, 20 years ago. I remember when uh, maybe even 30 years ago at this point, when you were covering the industry, there was it, London was important, Milan was important, uh, and, and of course Paris was important as well. What's changed now, uh, certainly when you think about menswear, Milan is still important for uh, primarily for Italian brands, but let's say you're a, a small player uh, out of Johannesburg uh, and you want to, to make your way in the world because you've done something interesting in sportswear, or you are an emerging brand out of Copenhagen, and you want to get on the international stage, you've got the money to invest in a showroom and a PR, and, and you want to get in front of international buyers, where would you go? Well, 
France, France, well, or I should say Paris, um, has has really sort of you know won that discussion um, and debate. Uh, and so, if you have to do a one-stop shop right now, uh, this is this is the city to go to. London is pretty much disappeared. We're, I was talking to um, an English showroom yesterday who represented a number of international brands. But they say eighty-five percent of their business is done in Paris, only 15% uh, out of the UK. Extraordinary. That Brexit is responsible for so much, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed it is. Um, yeah. Um, you're also talking about uh, television shows and watching the weather uh, on them, uh, but there's a lot of buzz around uh, a new show called Bonjour. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, TF1 has uh, launched uh, really head-on into the morning television uh, wars in, in this uh, country. Right now, it's dominated by France 2. France 2 has uh, Telematin, which is uh, really a long-running morning news show. Uh, very interesting format uh, compared to what you, you might be used to if you switched on the TV in Australia uh, or, or, or Canada or the UK or the US. Uh, it's it's you know, much more multi-camera, multi-screen, so many presenters uh, sitting around the desk. Um, and this kind of interesting mix in France, I think, of, of sort of levity, but without being silly uh, and, and still being authoritative and seeing that yeah, if you're watching France, too, just the amount of correspondence they still have around the world. I was you know, watching it the other morning, and it's amazing. You're in Dakar one moment, uh, and, and then you're in Cayenne. Uh, so you're, you're, you're sort of showing up all over the Francophone world, as much as being in London and Tokyo and elsewhere as well. So. Uh, there's, there's obviously some advertising dollars, uh, which are still, um, or ad- advertising euros, I should say, which are still available. Uh, so TF1 decided to launch Bonjour. They went and poached uh, a high-profile presenter from BFM TV, one of the rolling news channels here, um, and have sort of, you know, really sort of waded in with an extraordinarily expensive studio, uh, a, a huge lineup uh, of, as they say in France, columnists. Um, and I mean, I, I can't, Georgina, you can't even imagine. They've got sort of an aircraft carrier-sized desk just to get all of the contributors around it. Um, you know, almost like taking the whole floor of Midori House uh, just to be able to have uh, all of your various commentators uh, chipping in across uh, the multiple hours that the show runs. It sounds extraordinary. And that set in particular, they've brought in a ceiling, which is very unusual uh, for a studio set. And it's, it's quite cosy. It's apartment-like, I'm told. Yeah, it looks it looks apartment like. I mean, I'm not sure that you know uh, you're going to get sort of too cozied up in there. Of course, it's still a TV studio, so it needs to be it needs to be bright enough. I was actually commenting though that uh, of course this this has also challenged the existing uh, programs, BFM TV, uh, as a rolling news show uh, or a news channel. Their morning show actually does incredibly well in the country as well. It's, it's uh, ranked number three. Uh, this prompted them to also develop a a new studio. I was just watching it now. I would sort of rather live in the BFM TV studio. Um, very woody, very warm. And this is a good bit, Georgina. You know, of course, you know, when you're not in a radio world, your filters are important. <laughs> if you watch BFM TV, the cameras are much, much kinder to the presenters. Well, that's always what we need, isn't it? <laughs> uh, thankfully, I have a good face for radio. Tyler, thank you very much indeed. And good Thanks, luck Georgina. with everything there. That's uh, Tyler Brule, our editorial director, joining us from Paris. Well, we're back in our very cosy, lovely, wood-panelled, uh, gorgeous studio here in Midori House. And my guests, uh, my panellists indeed, are still with me. They are Latika Burke and Charles Hecker. Uh, both of you, thanks, uh, thanks so much for being here. Um, uh, we're talking about, we were talking about how uh, London is kind of <laughs> irrelevant.
relevant in 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 the fashion world, um, and, and also just sort of if you if you broaden that out and and just look at where everything is coming from, and and so of course we, we've got lots of imports coming in from China to here, but also to France. Tyler was talking about made in France. Do you think we're going to have a, a big return to homemade things as we see the global su- supply chain crumble? I thought President Emmanuel Macron made a very interesting speech at Davos this week, and it went largely unnoticed. But what he said was that Europe should be looking at raising more eurobonds uh, to essentially invest in clean technologies, i.e. China and the United States are crunching us. And if we don't respond in the same way, we're going to end up being a regulator and an, uh, and a continent of consumers and no industry. Yeah. Now, to see Europe suddenly, or you know, leading figures in Europe, and look, Macron has lots of um, thought bubbles that don't go anywhere, but to see these sorts of calls in Europe, I think, are really, really interesting. So far in the UK, we're not seeing that. There has been, a, a I think, a greater clamour to resist protectionist subsidies here as we transition, but I think that might change. And I think we'll certainly see a shift in that direction if Labor does get elected by the end of the year. But to answer your question, Georgina, yes, I do think we are going to see increasing calls for made in my home country, insert here. But I think it will be more specific. It will be on things like clean technologies. It will be on things like semiconductors, as we've seen in the United States uh, through the CHIPS Act. I'm not so sure that we'll ever see a call for basic line manufacturing, like clothes production and things back Mm. in our countries. There was a very interesting piece in the Financial Times not just a couple of days ago that said the UK has to learn to like the economy that it has. Um, And that is um, what is already made in Britain is where the UK should be doubling down economically. Um, And and the FT told us that the country already has a world-leading financial services sector. It has a world-leading legal sector. It is actually world-leading in the creation of electronic games. Um, And in that sort of field of technology, design, graphics and arts um, and it should double down on that. And there was a whole list of of things that the UK should be promoting rather than trying to diversify and be everything to everybody. Um, What's going to be interesting about being made in the UK is that we now also have to label our food that says – not for the EU. Um, and, and so we have to be extra careful now when we're shopping at, at British supermarkets, looking at, you know, making sure that we're buying things that we're supposed to be eating and, and, and not being sent somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that um, we will have to, to, to emphasize our strengths and whatever we're already doing and making here, we're going to have to do more of it. Well, of course, and another reason for that is this uh, huge disruption in in in, in uh, global shipping in in the supply chain. Now, uh, of course, the the uh, didn't help with Russia and Ukraine, but what's really upended it now are the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. A uh, big piece in the New York Times about that, uh, Charles. Yes, that's right. So the New York Times today is showing a, a fantastic piece of of, of graphic art um, that shows the amount and the extent to which shipping is now having to detour around um, around Africa, the entire continent of Africa, to avoid going through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal because there is, of course, that pinch point off the coast of Yemen um, where the Houthis are now bombing um, international uh, commerce and, and, and ships that are headed uh, towards the Suez Canal. Um, what the Times tells us is the inflationary pressure that this new route 
costs in terms of fuel, in terms of time, in terms of delays, um, and in terms of supply chain disruption. And and it is just astounding to me how a, a, a sort of militant group in a corner of, of the Gulf um, is disrupting global trade. It's extraordinary. There are not very many of them, and yet this is having a worldwide impact. Why can't the world's largest army take them on? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I thought it was very, very insightful that when actually the time came to take out some of this infrastructure in Yemen that the Houthis are using to fire these missiles at commercial ships in the Red Sea. Mind you, let's just underline that. These are commercial ships simply going about global trade for the good of us all and being attacked. Uh, who was there by the United States side? Well, in the end, it was only the UK and with only four planes. And out of the 16 targets that were attacked that evening, the UK, uh, I think, only hit uh, two. So... You know, everyone wants to say, gee, the Americans are unreliable, they are so volatile, their politics is toxic, all of which is true, but everyone still has a desire for the United States to be the world cop and there's not too many other people looking at you, France, volunteering to support uh, and degrade what are absolutely abhorrent attacks on on all of our prosperity and livelihoods. Mm. Well, I I think this sort of brings us around to, to one of the themes that we discussed at the very, very top of the show, and and, and that is, um, just as Latika said, you know, how long or will the United States be able um, to resume or continue its role as the global sheriff? Um, to what extent does everybody else continue to rely on that projection of power and sort of hide under that umbrella of power? And, and one of the things that we've seen in the past week has been the international reaction um, to Trump's incredible display of force in the Iowa caucuses. Um, and so, you know, President Trump declared his candidacy for, I guess you could call it re-election, or maybe it's not re-election because, of course, Trump thinks that he never lost <laughs> the 2020 elections. But in any case, um, Trump declared his candidacy in 2022 and the world shuddered and thought, well, what are we going to do if he comes back? Um, he outstripped even the wildest expectations in his performance in Iowa. So now that shuddering is really turning into a bit of shivering. Um, and, and just to follow on on, on, on this comment um, about the U.S. being the, the global sheriff, um, you have Europe, Ukraine and Taiwan, not to mention sort of Israel, Gaza and everything else that's going on everywhere else, uh, wondering what to do. If this, you know, if if Trump's candidacy at the end of the primary season is 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 successful in the general election, and it's almost, I think, we're at a point now because of his show of force in Iowa, as you talk about to Charles, we're getting into a point or a time frame where, regardless if Trump is the president, the toxic division in America that will take place as a result of Trump's ascendancy to the nomination, which is very likely means that we will have a very divided America, and that's a weaker America. Even if Biden does win this election, the fact that we know Trump will be in the running, the fact that we know Trump will say this election was rigged, the fact that we know his supporters are possibly up for political violence to uphold that belief, means we are entering a very dangerous time. And I'm not really sure from my observations that foreign leaders are really grasping this. There seems to be a bit of wishful thinking denial going on. And there was no better example of this than yesterday uh, in London, Georgina, 
went to the Fabians conference where British Labor was having a get-together. Now, we are only a few months away from these people being in government if the polls are all right. And David Lammy, who's the Shadow Foreign Secretary, set out what he calls progressive realism, his vision for foreign policy under Keir Starmer. It's a very, very nice idea. He talks about Labor's reputation abroad being repaired. He talks about potentially an EU-UK security pact. He talks about uh, needing to step up for Europe's security. And he also talks about uh, a Britain with influence in the world, with the ability to change and transform the world from these frightening times we're in. How on earth is British Labor going to talk to a Donald Trump administration what was really fascinating in his speech yesterday, two countries he didn't mention at all, China and the United States. And I think that just about underlines everything we're seeing in, in the foreign policy conversation on this side of the Atlantic. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, and, and again, this deep division between Labour and, and, and the Tories, but again in, in America too. Uh, there were sort of parallel moments actually this week, weren't there, where we had the, the, the uh, Rishi Sunak was um, finally got his vote through, but it was the touch and go for a bit. And of course, then we had the uh, US Republicans threatening to bring down the House, Charles. That's right. We were facing another one of these moments where it was going to be as Yogi Berra, the, the very famous American baseball figure, said, you know, deja vu all over again. Um, and that is that, that the Speaker of the House, Johnson, in the United States, um, was trying to reach a compromise with the Democrats um, to uh, pass some budgetary legislation to allow the government to remain open, to allow the United States to continue to pay its bills um, and to continue spending money going forward. Um, ultimately, that only ended in the creation of another stopgap measure and kicking the ball down the road until March. But we were contemplating there a moment that looked like we were going to wind up with an internal Republican revolt. I'm touching on the point that Latika made about the, the polarization and, and, and um, the difficulty in, in, in American domain domestic politics and what that means domestically and what that means globally, we were looking at the collapse of another Speaker of the House. Um, and I think what happened at the last moment there, I mean, the bill passed, um, but and what we saw at the last moment was the Republicans saying, we cannot do this to ourselves again. Um, we cannot show that we are a party that is unable to govern. I mean, the, the Republicans have a very, very slim majority in the lower house of, of the U.S. Congress, um, and they've had a very difficult time keeping that uh, slim majority working. Um, and I think that if they were to do it again um, and, and upset, you know, overturn the apple cart um, in an election year, it would look very, very bad for any and every Republican candidate. And the same thing here happened in the UK Parliament. I'll turn that over to the new UK citizen. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think there was something slightly different going on with the British, actually. I thought it was very, very illustrative that for days, weeks, even months, we had heard of all of these rebels all of these Tory MPs on the right who were going to essentially take out Rishi Sunak's leadership, demolish his authority in the Commons by voting against the Rwanda bill on the basis that it's not hard enough, you know, deporting uh, asylum seekers to an African country to have their asylum claims processed is not going far enough. I digress. Um, in the end, 11 rebels, that was it. I mean, 11 when you have more than 300 MPs is nothing. And... I think this really does go to one of the problems that we have that, that causes a lot of this disaffection and polarisation in our societies. 
if we have a media that really wants to big up what ends up being 11 MPs being a, a rebellion or a show of force against Rishi Sunak, then we have a media that's not telling the whole story and we have media that is actually distorting the real situation because it's sensational. Of course, it's interesting. Of course, it's sexy that, you know, we have a prime minister under siege again. But if it's not true and if it's not being accurately portrayed, this is where people get very turned off by all the chaos and all the dysfunction that they read about that actually doesn't materialise. And I do worry here that there is, and we saw this in Australia, there is an addiction you can have to the political turmoil that really does cloud the way you end up reporting these stories. Mm. But it does look like both both um, the Republicans and the Tories here saw sense in the end and, and just particularly in an election year when we're not going to put uh, you know their, their personal politics above the nation. Well, I, I wonder if this hasn't led to a brief moment of introspection among sort of hard right-wing Tories and hard right-wing Republicans um, about the damage that they're doing to their own credibility and their own ability um, to govern. And, and whether this is a temporary ceasefire between sort of centrist rights and, and, and hard rights for the sake of, of the election, uh, elections come and elections go and then you've got to get back to the business of governing. Um, and, and this constant threat to burn down the House, you know, which may be reduced on the Tory side of this equation because they'll be out of government, as Latika says, if all the polling is accurate. And so, you know, they'll just be sort of lobbing in grenades from the sidelines. Um, but the United States is is more than likely to wind up with with a hybrid sort of government, and and you know the the, the majority for the Democrats in the Senate is extremely slim. The majority for the Republicans in the House is extremely slim, and it is projected to be an incredibly tight and close presidential election. So we're bound to wind up with some sort of imbalance in the political parties um, on Capitol Hill and on Pennsylvania Avenue, um, and. Someone's going to have to, to to sort of quiet down the extremes so that the centre can hold. Mm. Uh, Latika, I want to pick up on something you said there about uh, the media not showing us the whole picture, because there was a, a, a little clip that went viral uh, a couple oh, yes. of days ago, and this was of Rishi Sunak, uh, the British Prime Minister. He was doing a walkabout, and a woman stopped him and was trying to talk about the health service with him. And at one point, she said, "My daughter's been on the waiting list for seven years." Rishi Sunak laughs and walks off, and everybody's outraged. <laughs> then we see the full clip. He laughs. She walks with him. They continue talking. They shake hands. It was extraordinary. Yeah, and I don't think the media does itself any favours because when you have somebody potentially looking at coming back into power like Donald Trump, who openly laughs about being dictator on his first day only back in the job, and, and he's largely crusading against this exact sort of treatment by the media... It's very hard to disagree with him if if people are not responsible with the positions that they have. And one of the really fascinating parts about that clip is that it's been viewed on one social media platform, um, I think, around two million times. So, you know, it really does cut through. The correction or the follow-up clarification has only been viewed a couple of thousand times. It's in the thousands. Mm. Um, and so that really does go to show you again, OK, well, well, if you clarify and it's not seen by as many people, is the obligation there to delete it as opposed to just saying, oh, yeah, no, here's the real thing that no one else will see because obviously the effect of, of the false out outrage is, is much greater.
Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I want to pick up on something that David Lamy said that, that you were discussing. He was talking about how we really are in an age of a new world order, and that is kind of personified by Trump. And Trump is very much pushing that line too, isn't he? Yes, although Lamy is not alone and nor is Trump in saying this. I've been really struck by how many world leaders over the last few weeks have been willing to line up and tell us how awful the world is. Ursula von der Leyen was at Davos saying, uh, you know, we've reached multiple inflection points. Grant Shapps, the UK Defence Secretary, he's only been in the job a few minutes, but he was out on Monday uh, saying we've moved from post-war into pre-war and that within five years we could have multiple theatres involving Iran, Russia, North Korea and China. I mean... These are very extraordinary comments for world leaders to say. And you might be forgiven for thinking if if one of them said it, it was for political aim. But people like Ursula von der Leyen is a, is a pretty sober world leader. David Lammy's uh, prone to exaggeration sometimes, but not on these sorts of issues. So when he says we're in frightening times and a, a global disorder is emerging from the international rules-based order, I think we do need to take stock and, and note that actually the people who are leading us through these times are really, really worried themselves, so worried they're willing to tell us how deeply worried they are. Yeah, and some of them, the people that are leading us, are really not up to the job. I'm just... I'm, well, I'm, 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 Georgina, it was ever thus. Who do you have in mind in particular, Georgina? Well, yes, first of names. Therese Coffey standing up in in, uh, in Parliament not knowing that Kigali was the capital of Rwanda when she was discussing the Rwanda bill. But also talking about Grant Shapps. I mean, he, he's had, this is a man with multiple identities. He's called himself Michael Green, Corinne Stockheath, Sebastian Fox. I mean, it's it's all very, very odd, isn't it? It is, but do you know, I do have a little sympathy with politicians because who on earth would want to go into politics? I mean, we don't. We're sitting on the sidelines commenting and criticising and I'm very cognisant of this, that when these people do put their hands up, uh, they do, I think, need to be applauded for that and I think we can sometimes make the conditions of those jobs so difficult that you really do get to the bottom of the barrel of people who are willing to put themselves through the level of scrutiny that they have to go through to get these jobs. And I do think there's a high correlation there. So, yes, you're right, Georgina. I don't think leadership quality is maybe as as good as we'd all like. But, I mean, are we going to do the job? (laughs) Not me. Not me. (laughs) me. Two very good points there, one that I want to agree with and one that I want to sort of slightly disagree with, and that is I agree completely that that politics is not attracting the best and the brightest anymore and and, and that if you're a young, aspiring um, you know, professional, or you know, it is so much easier now to go into a, 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 a field of activity that's not going to destroy your life on in the public arena. Um, and by the way, you can make a lot more money um, outside of politics. And so, I think that good people aren't necessarily going into politics anymore. And the notion of public service has been so degraded over the past few decades that that it's it's lost any sense. Um, the one thing that I want to disagree with very briefly is this notion of a new world order, which I don't think is here yet. I only wish we had a new world order because then we would know what it was and we'd know what to do with it. Yeah. Um, and I think what we've got to come for, for many, many years ahead really is is this seri- this this um, period of continental drift, if you will, um, and disruption uh, where you know all of the, the sort of toys have been thrown off the table um, and until they settle again somewhere else and in a new alignment, 
um, we won't have any world order for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, both of you. I think we should head off to Spain now, uh, where the time there is now 10.31. It's uh, 9.31 here in London. And Mary Fitzgerald, who is Monocle's correspondent, uh, is reporting from Granada uh, today. Mary, good morning to you. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, tell us about the neighbourhood that you're in in Spain. Well, I'm uh, staying for a month in the Albicine neighbourhood of, of Granada, of course, the, the storied uh, Spanish city and, and home to the Alhambra, which is the most visited tourist site in, in Spain. And Albicine is um, on the hill. Granada is a city of hills. Uh, it's on the hill overlooking um, the, the Alhambra. So the views from Albicine are, are really breathtaking. And Albicine was traditionally the, um, the, the Muslim quarter in in Granada, there were a lot of people here um, who who basically had roots in in North Africa. Of course, um, Granada was a key city in Al Andalus, the name of the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, and and now Portugal, when it was under Islamic rule, and of course that lasted for for eight centuries. So Albacín is is a very storied place and a very storied city, and Albacín is also UNESCO World Heritage Site. Mm -hmm. Uh, And tell us a little bit more about that, because people want to visit, and therefore there's a lot of tourism there. Indeed, and what's interesting in terms of Albacín is that um, for for many years it was a low-income neighborhood. It was a place that uh, people in Granada told me that older generations did not want to live here. Um, It's on the hill. There are very few streets where cars can go through, so you have to walk up these very steep hills, cobbled uh, streets. Um, But in recent years, uh, with the growth of of tourism, Albacín has been highly uh, sought after by uh, tourists, but also, of course, people who want to get involved in in the tourist industry. So it's interesting to see how there's an increasing kind of touristification debate here in Granada, as we've seen unfold elsewhere in in Spain and uh, and other countries around the Mediterranean. I've been struck walking around the neighborhood, actually, just looking at at real estate agents. And, you know, most of the properties for sale, basically the pitch is this is a good investment. It's a tourist, uh, a a tourist property, essentially. Mm. So for Airbnbs mostly, I I would guess. Yes, for sure. But also boutique hotels and that. Though I am struck, I mean, I live full time in in Marseille where we have uh, a real debate about Airbnb raging and and militant activists taking a more kind of aggressive way of trying to counter it. I'm not getting the same sense here. I mean, there's a pushback against Airbnb, but not as dramatic as we're seeing in in Marseille. Mm -hmm. Uh, And speaking of the property market, there's a bit of a scandal around the Emir of Qatar, who's bought a traditional villa in the area. Yes, this is an interesting story. Uh, the Emir of Qatar bought um, the Carmen uh, Agustin, which is considered one of the finest. Carmen in Granada is a traditional villa. It's considered one of the finest Carmens in the Albacine neighborhood. And he bought that for uh, $17 million uh, dollars, uh, in 2019, the equivalent of $17 million. But what's what's been in the news recently here is that he's coming up against uh, pretty strict urban planning rules. Uh, uh, which, of course, are related to the UNESCO World Heritage Site designation. Emir cannot do the uh, the rebuilding that he wanted to do in terms of this uh, traditional villa. Uh, I'd like to turn now to the harvest in Spain, um, because, of course, we know that the country is the world's largest producer of olives, but there's been a problem. <laughs> 
Yes, indeed. Uh, so last year, Spanish friends of mine started warning me, I love my olive oil, uh, living in Marseille, that uh, poor harvests in Spain uh, meant that the th there was going to be an olive oil shortage and that uh, prices were going to shoot up. That has happened. Olive oil, the price of olive oil around the world has, has more than doubled in price. And it's really being felt here in Spain. Of course, the Spanish consume a lot of olive oil as well. I've noticed um, just in, in supermarkets here seeing mass market uh, brands now at 10 euro um, a litre, which which is quite a, a dramatic uh, uh, rise. And uh, there are fears here in, in Spain that the price of a mass market brand litre could go up to 13 euro uh, this year, uh, which would be really hitting a mainstay of the Spanish diet. And already people here tell me that uh, consumption levels have gone down because a lot of Spanish simply can no longer afford it. Mm. And farmers fear as well the continuing droughts uh, will see uh, another poor harvest. So this is a trend that is expected to, to continue over the next couple of years. Uh, let's have a look at what's happened this last week, particularly in Algeria. There's been an official holiday to celebrate uh, New Year. Yes, so this is an interesting uh, development, both in Morocco and Algeria, uh, two countries that are uh, home to the Amazigh. Uh, the Amazigh are the native uh, non-Arab population uh, across North Africa. They're sometimes uh, described as Berber, though that term is increasingly seen as, as pejorative. And they celebrate their um, New Year in mid-January. Uh, it's an ancient festival rooted in Amazigh uh, farming traditions. And this year was the first year that Morocco, the state of Morocco, uh, recognized it as an official holiday. Um, it has also an official holiday in Algeria. And uh, having this kind of designated as an official holiday is seen by many Amazigh activists as basically progress in terms of having their um, culture recognized. They also have their own language. And there has been a movement in recent decades to really become more assertive in terms of expressing uh, Amazigh cultural identity as something really quite different to, you know, the Arabized uh, culture that, uh, that grew over the centuries. Mary, thank you very much indeed. That's Mary Fitzgerald in uh, Granada. Uh, enjoy your, your month there in the sun. Uh, back to the panel here in the studio. I'm still with Latika Burke and Charles Hecker. Um, and I think it's probably time. We, she, Mary was talking about olive oil. Uh, as we know, that's a pretty healthy thing to be consuming. And at this time of the year, rather tediously, that is all we talk about, isn't it? Health and food and booze and so on. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty tired of of all this push and, and we all know that it, it we we lapse as soon as we can don't we i'd like to send out a message of solidarity <laughs> to everyone who is doing dry january uh, because I'm doing it as well, and I wonder if any of my co-panelists are doing dry January. I'm vehemently opposed to dry January. <gasps> I'm I'm into dry white wine January. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I've done dry January, and 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 you'll you'll remember these cartoons with the pie chart that show the months of the year, and basically January takes up half of the pie chart, and all the rest of the months are just little slivers. This has been the longest month of my life. Um, and and so, you know, a, a big message of solidarity to everybody else um, who is going through dry January. Um, but you're absolutely right, Georgina. We are being lectured um, and harangued from all quarters. 
uh, about how to live more healthfully, particularly after the excesses of Christmas and New Year's. And um, I'm a little bit shocked with, with what Mary had to say about the cost of olive oil because we're all being told, among other things, to follow the Mediterranean diet. Mm. The New York Times has actually got a big uh, piece on that about how to follow the Mediterranean diet. And as we, do, as we know, I mean, it is one of the healthiest ways to eat. I just think with all these dry this, a month of that, whatever, it's not sustainable. And actually, you can have... You- I mean, I don't even know where this phrase comes from, but I find you can have your cake and eat it too. (laughs) If, if, (laughs) if you follow the guidelines of sufficient, um, what is it? Elegant sufficiency, I think Uh, it is. Yes. Yes. And I actually do think Dr. Tim Spector over at Zoe is right when he talks about uh, limiting your window of eating. Let's talk about Zoe. Because I love Zoe. I am. I've just signed up, and I'm starting you in February. Up to Zoe. Wait, yeah. what is? Zoe? Oh my god! Oh my god! You're in for a revelation. Okay, tell us. Okay, wow, you wow, explain wow. it. Okay, so <laughs> Zoe is this theory by Dr. Tim Spector that all your health and how you gain weight or whatever is down to how your particular body, i.e., your stomach, digests whatever you're eating at what time. So he has come up with a system. It's very expensive, so I'm very jealous, Georgina, where you wear um, a blood glucose monitor. They give you a diet and you have to follow it. And what they test is how what foods you eat at what time and in what order affect you. So some people, for instance, can actually eat avocado but just not at this time. Or you can have red wine, but if you have it at this time with this sort of food, it's going to make you gain weight in a greater way than if you did it this way. So I'm very, very jealous of you, Georgina, because all I've ever wanted to do is Zoe. Well, I, I mean, it just I'm, I met somebody actually at a party. I'd read about it, obviously, and Zoe was very involved with all the, all the sort of COVID uh, research yes. too. But I met somebody at a party a couple of weeks ago and he said to me that Zoe had utterly changed his life. He said that within five weeks he dropped just a couple of stone in weight, uh, that he was feeling much more and healthy. they let you drink, Charles. They um, let you drink. Well, I had to sign up immediately. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you've piqued my curiosity, although I wonder what Zoe will have to say about somebody like myself who sort of eats everything all the time, all day long. And Uh, looks great on it. Well, that's 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 very nice of you. But, But, uh, I mean, really what what Latika is getting at and what Zoe gets at is is this whole thing about your gut biomes as well. And that's another story that we found here. Uh, Charles, you were looking at the New York Times, uh, and that's about gut biome health. Well, that's right. And so, you know, as we are harangued every January since time immemorial, (laughs) about how and what to eat. I think that food writers and nutrition writers are digging deeper and deeper to find new things to tell us. And this year's trend, it appears to me, in addition to Zoe, and I'm going to be doing a lot of Googling as soon as we were out of the studio, um, but um, this year the trend appears to be eating fermented foods. Um, We are being told now um, from anybody who has a platform that we're meant to be having things like kimchi, which is fine. Super kimchi is absolutely delicious. Love it all the time. We're meant to be having kefir. We're meant to be drinking kombucha. um, And we're meant to be trying things like tempeh, which I have tried and will never, ever go near (laughs) again. Um, But what this is supposed to do is, is enhance and improve our gut biome, which is the amount of bacteria that we have living in our, I believe, large intestine, which is um, supposed to be one of the most underrated but most critical organs in our body that is responsible for a lot of the way we look and feel. 
And well, absolutely, I mean, I'm very, very important. And soon I will know exactly what my gut biome is. I'm very excited. <laughs> Report I'll be, back. I'll be sharing this news. Monocle on Sunday. <laughs> Don't eat your breakfast. <laughs> Now, look, it's award seasons. Uh, We've uh, had the Emmys, which is all about TV, and the Oscars are coming up too. Uh, Shall we have a look at the nominations? I think Vanity Fair has a big list of them. So, uh, of course, Barbie uh, is up there, as in Oppenheimer, or Barbieheimer, as we're calling the two of them. Um, What are you going for? I mean, American fiction is one that's up for best picture. Tell us more, Latika, what, what, what you're... Uh... I've only seen the Barbieheimer duo, and I thought both were incredibly deserving. Probably actually more Barbie than Oppenheimer, even though Oppenheimer is the serious one. In terms of storytelling, it did lose its way a little and needed a bit of an edit. Uh, and I found some of the shots and dialogue a bit cliche, whereas Barbie, I thought, was absolutely show-stopping in terms of what it was trying to say, how it did it, the visuals, everything was new, everything was fresh, and I personally think it's going to be the seminal feminist text of our time. So I am fully up for Barbie winning this. Barbie was surprisingly good, Um, and I went in with fairly low expectations, but I thought it had an incredible sense of humour. I thought it had an incredible sense of irony. I thought it had um, a, a real fresh perspective on a number of issues. It was hilariously funny. It was a campus Christmas. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, it got a bit sort of treacly at the very end with that sort of sepia-toned um, film about feminism. And um, I thought was that was where they were reaching for, you know, go reach for the Kleenex. Um, but it was a refreshing surprise in, in just what a pleasure it was to watch. I mean, I agree that it, that it, that it will go down in, the, in sort of feminist history, but though it didn't tell me anything new about feminism. It didn't give me a new message. It might inspire women who perhaps, or girls who perhaps haven't thought about it, though. Interesting. I thought it did say a lot new about feminism, actually. I thought it was saying feminism is something that needs to be inclusive with masculinity. They go side by side. I also thought that she was saying feminism is no longer about looking like this. It's no longer about having to to achieve an equal level of power or project that. It's what you want to be in any way. But isn't that what every Instagram... You know, the um, post tells us, you know, you're good enough on your own. You don't have to look like Barbie. <laughs> no, I think the fact that it was the Barbie character saying that is the point. Because Barbie for so long has been sold to us women as the unobtainable, you know, I think they've done the math. Her body is physically <laughs> proportionally not possible. And so to take this thing, which, you know, Barbie as a text before this film had been something that was seen as an oppression of women, a trap for women, something that women could never reach and was for the male gaze. So to turn that around in the way she did and have Margot Robbie so beautifully play this, and and that's a very difficult thing for Margot Robbie because she is the perfect woman, Um, be able to say, no, here's all the flaws and here's what's okay about this and actually here's where feminism might have diverted over the last few years and here's where maybe we can get it back on track. I thought it was actually a very important text to say, particularly to women of my generation who who came after first wave feminism. Mm. We benefited from a lot, 
But there's also a lot, I think, in first wave feminism that we don't agree with because a lot of it was about projecting a more masculine approach. And I think this marriage of femininity and, and feminism is actually the whole point now because femininity itself has begone, has gone beyond Barbie. Mm. And, and that's what I liked about it. Can we talk about nuclear war now? Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up for that too, as, as monocle <laughs> listeners know. <laughs> so so the, the, the nominations will only be announced, of course, on, on January the 23rd, which is Wednesday. Um, and Oppenheimer is bound to be up there. That's right. Um, and, and interestingly, um, I saw Barbie on an airplane, and so maybe that was cheating the visual impact of, of the entire film. But I did see Oppenheimer on the big screen. And um, this may sound like a silly thing to say, but Oppenheimer was an incredibly visual movie. Um, as much as it was driven by plot and as much as it was driven by characters, um, it was driven also by, by image. And Killian Murphy's cheekbones, let's be honest. Yeah, how does he do that? <laughs> um, so um, it was something that I think needed to be seen on the big screen to feel the full visual impact um, of a nuclear weapon um, and its development. Um, the other thing that's interesting, though, since we're transitioning out of Emmy season and into Oscar season, is that so much of what's up for Oscars these days is available on the small screen now. Um, I saw Maestro, which is nominated um, for Best Picture, on Netflix. And, and this may be a misinterpretation, but I consider Netflix to be television. Um, and and so because I can watch it, you know, on my laptop, or I can stream it, or I can watch it on on a TV. Um, and w when the Emmys finished, we heard a lot of lamentations about the, the the sunset of the great era of television. It was also just the 25th anniversary of The Sopranos, which kicked off the golden era, at least of American television on HBO and, again, on Netflix and other streaming services. Um, I still think that, that television has um, a lot of legs in it, um, maybe not network broadcast television as we once knew it, but certainly all of these these alternatives. And most of what is available now for Oscar viewing is available on the small screen, mm. which to me is an enhancement uh, and is a blending of the media in a way that I think is good for the viewer and, and, and for audiences all around. One problem I find with the small screen is that I tend not to stick at things. So, for instance, we started watching Killers of the Flower Moon. Had I been in a cinema, I would have stayed for the whole mm. thing because I'd paid for my ticket. But after five minutes, it was just too too depressing for me. I bailed on that one. Have, has anybody else seen it? No, I haven't. I mean, I don't get. I don't know where you find time to watch all these things. My television is YouTube, and it's just endless press conferences, live streams. <laughs> I mean, if you go to my algorithm, I'm the most boring person on the universe. I think what I do is, I mean, you know, I tend to sort of binge a lot and and also do quite a bit of surfing and sort of pick things up and drop them. Um, Latika, I hugely recommend. I mean, at the end of a, of a long day and a hard day's work. Um, there is nothing better than just absolutely hoovering out your brain um, with a little bit of television, a little bit of Netflix, a little bit of cinema, um, just to sort of level set yourself uh, before you get ready for the next day. So, but there's a big difference, isn't there, between scripted content and non-scripted content. And one show that's absolutely got the British public enthralled, and in, indeed there are versions all over the place, is The Traitors. Anybody watching that? I no. love it. Can uh, I just I, tell you, I love it. I only know about traitors because sometimes when I do hoover out my brain, I do like that expression now that I'm British, um, is to watch, there's two things I do watch. And one is, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, it's Glow Up, which is a makeup competition. <laughs> 
And the second thing is Gogglebox. And Gogglebox makes them watch Traitors. And so I do know about Traitors, but only through Gogglebox. Right. So it's basically, it's kind of, a, it's a game of murder. It's it's the game that we all sort of know where you wink across the table and the person dies. Only this is television. They're all put in a, <laughs> in a, in a Scottish castle. Some are Traitors, the rest are Faithful, and the Traitors set about murdering the Faithful. Uh, but then all of these other games start, and the Traitors are playing games, and the Faithful are trying to work out who they are. And it's just Do the so... Traitors know who the other Traitors they are? do. Okay, yeah. right. It's all so manipulative. But what, what a great thing that's just happened is that there's a guy who's who is actually a I think he directs videos or something, and he's suddenly in the spotlight, and he's he's just created this fantastic story arc for himself. You can see stars being born by how various <laughs> people react to the camera and what they're doing, and it's just extraordinary. And people in this country are obsessed, including me. So, what is it like, Cluedo? But a, a bit, okay. Is this something that you have to watch sort of with all the lights on and, and not right before bedtime because it's... No, a it's not. I mean, they, they, the, the, the whole kind of gothic scariness of it is very camped up. And Claudia Winkleman, as, as the host, is, is very good in kind of in camping it up. But it's it's not scary. After I'm done Googling Zoe, I'll start Googling traitors. It is, but it is fascinating what kind of resonates in this day and age. You know, one of the biggest stories in Australia the last few weeks has been Princess Mary becoming queen because in Denmark, because she's obviously Australian, she met Frederick in a bar in Sydney during the two, uh, 2000 Olympics. Literally the best pickup you could ever imagine, right? And it is a story... She didn't know, though, did she? No, she didn't know no. Well. It's a story about nothing and should mean nothing to anybody. But everyone wants to read it. And I think there is this huge appetite for complete zone-out content, as you say, Charles, where actually the world is so awful pertaining to our earlier conversation. Just whatever is pleasant is good enough right now. And I think Traitor sounds like this, you know, a bit of harmless fun and intrigue without actual any cost. Well, absolutely. But uh, I, I, I want to go back to, to Queen Mary. Okay. <laughs> now, I'm not a Queen Mary expert, Georgina. <laughs> um, the, uh, there's, um, I think it's the Mail has this headline, uh, the double blow of King Charles and our future Queen Kate's medical treatment leaves the <laughs> nation reeling. It sends a shiver down our spines and shows how threadbare royal resources are. As I was saying, everyone needs entertainment. (laughs) I've not been able to get out of bed since this 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 double whammy crisis. Um, It's a bit overdone. Um, I mean, you know, one of the winners of of all of the Emmys was a show called Succession. Uh, And if, as a royal family, you haven't gotten your succession planning down, then you're in very big trouble. And we have an inexhaustible line of succession in the British royal family, and I'm not all that worried about it. I was, however, riveted by the coronation scenes and the abdication of Queen Margaret of Denmark. I'm a big fan of Denmark. to visit frequently on business and and, and on holiday. Um, And they really did it right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, uh, Another interesting bit of royal news for you. Uh, is Georgina, that the... you're in a royal... I, I love this because I'm pretty sure, Georgina, you subscribe to the We Don't Talk About Royals on Monocle. We don't talk about royals on Monocle. Yeah, but here but we I are. am going to tell you that tomorrow on The Globalist, one thing we will be talking about, though, is the Dutch royal family's income because they are going to be taxed. And I think that's really, really interesting and really tells us something about, about the Netherlands. Absolutely. That is very interesting. Charles, do you have strong royalist feelings? Well, so I also took British citizenship um, a number of years ago, and uh, the novelty quickly wore off. Um, uh, 
you know, as as someone who was born and raised in the United States, the, the notion of of a royal family in general as a genre of individual, whether it's in the United Kingdom, in the Netherlands, in Denmark, or even the imperial family in Japan, um, is is unusual to me and and, and a little bit alien. Um, I, I think that most royal families, particularly the British royal family, um, in in modern times are designed to do two things, um, and that is to promote tourism. Uh, now, no, three things. Promote tourism, be a source of soft power, and generate as much scandal as humanly possible. <laughs> I think that's uh, true. My views on the royal family have completely changed, actually, after eight years of living here. When I moved, I was I was really ambivalent. You know, I had no no fixed view on, on it either way, um, being Australian. And my view is very much, you know, woman has baby. Why does everyone need to line outside a hospital for three days to, to report on this? I mean, I still think that bit's crazy, by the way. But I have come to view the royal family as actually something you would never do if you were beginning from scratch, but be very grateful to have them now because I don't think anyone who's in the royal family actually really particularly loves the job. It's a public prison, let's be honest. Secondly, I think what has happened over time, if you compare to 97 where politics was ascendant and everyone felt quite good about the direction of politics and the economy for that matter, no one felt particularly happy about the royal family. What you have 20 years later is completely the opposite and no better example of this than what happened at Grenfell when Theresa May went out as the Prime Minister of the day, completely screwed it up. The optics were terrible. The next day, I think it was William and the Queen went out and absolutely pulled it off. And I thought, bang, there you go. That's what this is. This is something that when people have lost everything, there's still some sort of anchor in their life that they can grasp and it makes them feel included and part of something. And I do also think there is a reason why we don't have neo-Nazis in this country. Inside the British society, I think you have a lot of stabilisation we're not seeing on the continent. And one of the reasons, I think, is that the royal family allows for a outlet of, of uh, patriotism without that necessarily turning into nationalism. And I've seen this at the concerts. I've been to the Jubilee concert. I went to the Coronation concert. And I was stunned by old men, young children, girls, boys, every demographic you can imagine, all happy and proud to wear the Union Jack. And there's not that many countries, actually, where wearing the national flag is an okay thing to do. Yeah. We are going to have to end there. I just wanted to posit this with you. They were also singing Rule Britannia. Britannia rules the waves in support of Britain's colonial past, which I'm not sure is something I subscribe to. But I just wanted to thank you both very much for coming on. That's Charles Hecker and Latika Burke. Also, Mary Fritz-Gerald spoke to us um, from Granada and Tyler Brule was uh, with us from Paris. Uh, this programme was produced and studio managed by Mariella Bevan and I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle on Sunday returns next week with Emma Nelson, but until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you.